A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from across the continent as NATO meets in Bucharest. We discuss the visit of the President of Kazakhstan to Moscow and speak to Alona Shevchenko, lead at Ukraine DAO and Kyiv Tech Summit, about crypto, fundraising, and her trips back to Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 30th of November, Day 280. And today, I'm joined by foreign correspondent James Kilner and our guest, Alona Shevchenko. Just a few updates are needed before we talk to James. A huge fire has ripped through an oil depot in Russia's Bryansk region near the border with Ukraine on Wednesday, following a suspected drone attack. The Russian government did not say what caused the fire, but the pro-Kremlin Izvestia newspaper reported it was caused by an unidentified munition dropped from a drone. The suspected attack comes after two fires raged at fuel facilities in the city in April, and there was immediate speculation that they'd been caused by Ukrainian missile strikes or sabotage teams. Germany will provide Ukraine with more than 350 generators after Russian missile strikes severely damaged Ukrainian infrastructure. The European Commission has proposed confiscating Russian assets that have been frozen to punish Moscow for the invasion. And in Spain, a worker was injured after a letter bomb sent to the Ukrainian embassy in Madrid exploded in his hands. The letter was reportedly addressed to Ukraine's ambassador in Spain and contained a small homemade explosive. The EFE news agency said the device had not been through a security scanner when it was opened. I invited James Kilner to talk us through some of the stories he's been looking at this week. Hi, David. Um, I think it's really important people looking at the news about Ukraine and and and, and the war today and, and this week keep a very close eye on what's going on in Bucharest at the NATO summit. This is the big um, the big annual jamboree, the big get together, and um, there's a lot of lot of issues going on. Obviously, the uh, the, the the NATO partners, etc., are continuing to discuss the war in, in in Ukraine, and especially the win the winter war that Russia and the Kremlin is waging on on Ukraine. And and today, um, uh, the NATO general secretary was warning of a of an increase in people fleeing from Ukraine into Europe to escape temperatures which are dropping to minus ten, etc., already. 
uh, the end of November. And then one really complicated and very interesting NATO question that's been bubbling over since May is Sweden and Finland trying to join. Or, I mean, they, they proved that they were going to join in mid-May and they thought it would be a pretty much uh, an, an, an easy an easy thing to achieve. The problem has been Turkey. So to join NATO, you have to have every single other member agree to this. Turkey's a NATO member and Erdogan's been playing a very hard game with Finland and Sweden trying to join. He basically wants both those countries to make more concessions to his way of thinking and, and looking at how the world works, etc. Um, and he's pushing them very hard on the issues of, of their support or their previous support for the PKK, the um, Kurdish Kurdish national group um, in Turkey and Syria, which uh, Turkey sees as a terrorist organization. So there's huge there's a huge bone of contention between Turkey and Sweden, Finland on that issue. Um, and that's definitely something to watch out for. Importantly, also, NATO has reaffirmed that it still wants Ukraine to join the Western Defence uh, Alliance. I mean, there's, that's more of a symbolic show of support for Kiev and Ukraine rather than anything practical at this stage. I mean, it first said that it wanted Ukraine and Georgia to join in 2008, and it hasn't, it hasn't achieved, you know, neither Ukraine or, or Georgia has achieved this. And as things are at the moment, that is not going to shift. But the actual act of reminding Russia that it can't have a veto on who joins NATO, reminding Ukraine that essentially Europe and the US, uh, etc., want um, Ukraine in their club is, is quite important. Aside from that, I was on the desk over the weekend and we had an interesting story about a group called the Council of Mothers and Wives of Servicemen. This is a Russia grassroots organization, which is fairly rare in itself. And they have been anti-war from the start. And they've become increasingly vocal since mobilization was called by the Kremlin in mid-September. And they got very upset on Friday when Putin met a hand-picked group of so-called mothers for tea at a residence, one of Putin's residents in the outskirts of Moscow, in a very carefully stage-managed photo op, video op. He, this in itself was it was it was it was interesting for for the Kremlin because it was it was admitting for the first time by Putin that he he upset and and uh, irritated a lot of people and angered a lot of people with his mobilization call. So that in itself was an interesting insight into Kremlin thinking. Um, but once again, the Kremlin's knee-jerk reaction is to try and absolutely control the message. And he handpicked uh, this group of women to have tea with for a couple of hours. And they were all staunchly pro-Kremlin, pro-war women who, who got track records of supporting the Kremlin and being sort of on the, on the Russian national side of things. And this really upset the real grassroots groups of uh, mothers and wives uh, of servicemen in Russia who have been terribly upset by the mobilization process, which has sent a lot of their men down to war in, on the front lines of Ukraine with only a few days of training and inadequate we- weapon and body armor, etc. And they, on Friday afternoon, called on Vladimir uh, Putin to, to go and meet them in Red Square on the, on the Sunday, you know, a few, a few days ago, and to talk with them properly, face to face. Of course, this was never going to happen, but there was maybe an expectation that the mothers would turn up anyway and try and protest, 
protests against the war in 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 Russia, as we know, are illegal. But the night before and and uh, 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 Saturday night and Sunday morning, their social media page on the main Russian social media channel Veke had had been um, blocked by the Prosecutor General of Russia. If you go if you went onto the page then, it would say this page has been blocked uh, in Russia by the Prosecutor General under the orders of the Prosecutor General. So the authorities were, you know, they're, they're cracking down on this. They're expecting something. They cracked down. And lo and behold, the uh, the protests or the meeting never happened. It shows the Kremlin way of thinking. They cracked down. Um, and it shows their control of the scenario and, and how they can manipulate the, the Russian population, et cetera. Moving very quickly on, we had um, the Kazakh president, Tokayev, was in the Kremlin, travelled up to Moscow and went to see uh, Putin on Monday. This was his first overseas visit since being re-elected as president last week. Um, he was under a new constitution. He he won a seven-year term, which was, must be one of the longest in the world. It's quite remarkable. But the importance of him going to to see Putin was that, as he said, it was a symbolic gesture of the strength of the relationship between Kazakhstan and Russia. Now, Central Asia and Kazakhstan had to play a very difficult game throughout this war to uh, make sure they keep on side with the West and their sanctions and economic demands, but not alienate themselves too much from Russia, which is one of their key benefactors, etc., etc. And, and it, it had felt that the Central Asian states had shifted quite dramatically away from, from Russia's orbit. But this visit in itself reminds people that Kazakhstan and others have a limited room to manoeuvre. So that in itself is very interesting. And then finally, I just wanted to flag up a Reuters report, uh, which came out last Friday, which was very interesting. It was about uh, secret talks held in uh, the UAE, and mediated by the UAE, which was also important, between Ukrainian and Russian officials about reopening an ammonia pipeline between the city of Togliati in Russia and Odessa on the uh, Ukrainian port. This in itself is interesting for two reasons. It comes at a time when the US is trying to pressure Ukraine into sitting down with Russia and having proper peace talks. Ukraine said it's not prepared to do that until Russia retreats from all the territory it has occupied since 2014. But any sign of peace talks, secret peace talks between the two sides, even uh, over something as seemingly innocuous as as an ammonia pipeline, is really important because it means there is dialogue going on, etc. And all this is building blocks of potentially something something bigger. The uh, the second reason is that although we've had a very high profile deal to 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 allow grain trade uh, grain shipments out of Ukraine, analysts and 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 negotiators have always said that there's as well as being a grain shortage around the world, there's also been a fertilizer shortage, which is obviously really important to increase productivity, etc. Uh, ammonia is, is the key chemical product, one of the key chemical products in fertilizer, and, and Russia is a major exporter of it. So uh, reopening this pipeline, it's not clear if it has been reopened yet, is 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 potentially really, really important for um, global food sources, etc. So I, th- I think those are the key issues for now, and I'll, 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 I'll let you get on with the rest of the podcast. Sounds like a great one. 
Thank you very much for that, James. It's a great privilege to welcome our guest today, Alona Shevchenko. Alona, thank you so much for coming uh, into the office to talk to us. Just to start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your life, and what you were doing and working on before the full-scale invasion in February? Hello, David. Um, Hi, everyone. Uh, Thank you for having me here, first of all. So before the full-scale invasion began, I was... um, Working on uh, various Web3 projects, and uh, that kind of led to what later became Ukraine DAO, um, that I started with two of my friends three days before the full-scale invasion on the 24th of February. And essentially, it's uh, a combination of um, blockchain fundraising, and uh, it's also turned into like a multimedia platform that amplifies Ukrainian voices. And we also do quite a lot of work uh, fighting Russian propaganda. Can we get into some of those terms? Because I appreciate there'll be quite a few listeners for whom some of this is very, very new. So we've talked about blockchain, Web3, uh, DAO. Can you just go into, into that? Uh, feel free in, in detail, really. What, what should the, the listener who doesn't really know much about the world of crypto and blockchain, what should they know about what you're working on? How, how does it work? And, and I guess one big question is, why is it more effective uh, or quicker than more traditional um, routes of fundraising? Uh, so... Crypto stands for basically cryptography, and it's a way of storing and recording information in a transparent uh, way, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, linked to any financial um, speculations and so on. It's a very diverse uh, technology. It's neutral, and it can be used in multiple different industries like logistics, medicine, and so on. Um, and then DAO, uh, so the project that I co-founded with my friends is called Ukraine DAO, and the DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it kind of has its origin in more uh, technical communities uh, that started uh, organizing a few years ago, but right now it's pretty much uh, with social impact DAOs, for example, it's a community with a certain mission. And so uh, Ukraine DAO's mission, for example, right now, is to help Ukraine win. So we do uh, whatever is in our power to um, assist in Ukraine's defense. Can you take us back to to February, to March, and and tell us a little bit about your life and how it changed after the full-scale invasion? And and tell us about the founding of of Ukraine DAO. How did that come about? What did you do? It uh, pretty much came out of... uh, me going to protests and getting really worried uh, in the weeks preceding uh, the 24th of February. And uh, my friends who knew that I was very passionate about Web3 and very passionate about Ukraine as well, they suggested to me, why don't you start a a DAO? And uh, that was because DAOs became last year kind of like a buzzword, right, that generates a lot of uh, publicity. And uh, publicity is what you want if you are Ukrainian, because um, it's very hard, actually, to keep Ukraine in the news cycle, right? It's been nine months now, and um, sometimes we really struggle to um, keep the focus on Ukraine. Uh, And so DAO, you know, it sounded like a good... um, good option and uh, it it was also because ukraine is a very crypto friendly country so ukrainian charities uh, we decided to start from fundraising and uh, helping ukrainian charities that already uh, were accepting crypto for years um ukrainian charities were um like they they already had the infrastructure for it right so it was much much easier to do that uh than in um, other countries and so we started from that 
uh, we raised, um, we started raising like a couple of days after the full-scale invasion began and uh, within a few days uh, we raised over seven million dollars worth of crypto. We transferred the vast majority of it to Come Back Alive, which is the um, the leading uh, charity in Ukraine that supports the army. And uh, that was because supporting the army in Ukraine is the highest priority for everyone. Um, then we also sent uh, about a million worth, um, a million dollars worth of crypto to the Ukrainian official wallet, the government's one. Um, and then some funds also went to um, a charity supporting LGBT uh, community and uh, towards mental health support. Eight million dollars is is a huge amount of money. So congratulations on that. Um, may I ask, did you expect that? Did you expect to be able to reach so many people or reach people with such deep pockets? And if I can ask, where does this money come from? Do you have a sense of who's donating? First of all, no, I didn't expect. <laughs> I didn't expect anything from Ukraine now. And uh, to be honest, up until the last moment, I was hoping that I would not need it uh, because I we started setting it up on the twenty first of February and. Uh, it was just basically a group chat on Telegram uh, with three people in it, right? And uh, then on the 24th at night, I, I left a message to the guy saying that uh, the full-scale invasion began and they started pulling that um, friends into the group chat. Um, and they later became uh, more uh, regular contributors of Ukraine now. Um, and so the day, I obviously, DAOs and Web3 were not exactly on my mind. And I was uh, in a state of shock, speaking to parents, speaking to friends. And then I went to the protest at uh, 10 Downing Street. Um, and by the time I came back in the evening, um, I opened my laptop. And in our Discord, uh, Discord is where kind of online communities uh, live. Um, there was 2,000 people all of a sudden, you know, and it was like a buzzing uh, place online. Um, a lot of people were like exchanging different ideas. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's how it's kind of kicked off. So the, it was completely kind of, it looked like it was outside of my control <laughs> by that time. Uh, and so it, it, it was not predictable at all. You've been doing this, obviously, since the start of the full-scale invasion. What are some of the challenges you found along the way? As you said, I mean, from everything you've said, you're kind of on the forefront of this cutting-edge technology that even as as you can hear from my questions, we still have to sort of really spell it out. You know, what is a DAO? Can we explain crypto? Can we just get those fundamentals? But what are some of the challenges you've found with your work over the past few months? In the beginning, I can tell you, it was hard to communicate to some contributors in the beginning uh, why it's important to support the army, right? Uh, the military, uh, especially, I think, maybe in, in the U.S., they have a diff- very different perception and very different connotation. And uh, uh, not everybody understood why Ukrainians are so passionate uh, about supporting their armed forces. And in Ukraine... Right now, armed forces are um, basically, uh, they're like gods, you know, because all our hope is on them, all our, like, it's an existential hope, you know, and so all of of the spare funds, uh, all the non-financial support is going to support uh, our boys and girls who are defending us. But that has to be communicated in the beginning. Uh, So that was one thing. Um, Then, uh, God... A lot of a lot of stuff. I think just communicating what it means to be Ukrainian and uh, realizing that um, people just don't sometimes have the full context to the situation, right? So they started following the news on the twenty fourth, 
but uh, and they they mean well. They uh, really want to support Ukraine, but they don't yet know our history, and so a lot of work goes into kind of um, communicating that to them and edu- helping them educate themselves about uh, the prehistory, what was happening before, uh, what was happening in 2015 when we had uh, the revolution of dignity, um, and uh, kind of explaining that the history of our unfortunate relationship with Russia goes back centuries. So that's uh, that's a huge challenge to this day. Moving away from um, uh, Ukraine, Dow, can we talk about your, your trips back to Ukraine? You've been there several times this year. Can you tell us a little bit about those visits? Where did you where did you go roughly and what, what did you see? What would you want our listeners to, to know? Um, yeah, I went three times this year. First time, the I guess the main goal was to see my parents. I did not expect even to see them this year, um, and so I was really anxious at first because I was imagining Ukraine like just one uh, hellish place that's in flames and so on. Had a very, uh, very wrong perception of it, and then. I arrived and uh, it took me three days. To <laughs> took me three days to get there. Uh, I drove with my friend from London, and uh, you go there, and it's um, obviously there is a huge front line. Uh, I think it's like a thousand kilometers length. But um, apart from there, everything is very orderly. Everything is very organized, and uh, everyone is just. Uh, very very resilient and very uh, united and that was um, very inspiring to see um, second time uh, we organized a hackathon um, it was it's called Kiev Tech Summit it's going to be uh, an annual event um, we get a lot of support from our partners but also from uh, the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine that are doing absolutely amazing job uh, developing new services all the time, but also supporting uh, grassroots efforts like ours one. And so we were visited by uh, Ukraine's, sorry, Ukraine's Vice Prime Minister and uh, Minister for Digital Transformation, uh, Deputy Minister as well, uh, so Mikhailo Fedorov and uh, Alex Pernikov. Um, and we had, uh, yeah, we hosted a hackathon in a bomb shelter. So that was pretty amazing. That's extraordinary. Could you tell us a little more about that? What 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 were you doing? You know, um, what what happens in a hackathon, and especially what happens in a hackathon in a bomb shelter? So we wanted to develop solutions that would uh, make a difference, that would make a positive impact for uh, people in Ukraine, and uh, solve some issues related with uh, disinformation campaign waged by Russia, a broken communication system. Um, come up uh, also with to me uh, the most uh, I guess the most important thing or the most uh, something that appealed to me the most was uh, onboarding Ukrainian IT developers we have a lot of them we are a huge IT hub uh, right but because a lot of companies have unfortunately struggled this year a lot of developers um, ended up being you know losing their jobs and so kind of onboarding them or even showing them that there are different uh, career opportunities and different communities they could join. Um, so to me, that was the most uh, valuable thing in the hackathon. 
And in terms of bomb shelter, it was a very good, good bomb shelter. You know, it didn't look like one. <laughs> it was um, hosted in uh, Unit City, which is a really, really beautiful like, conference uh, center. And uh, if you if you saw saw the pictures, um, you can look them up in our website, kievtechsummit.com. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't look like a bomb shelter. You wouldn't be able to tell. You've mentioned the blockchain. You've mentioned disinformation. I want to ask you a little bit about your work with uh, Starling Lab. This is backed by uh, Stanford on recording Russian war crimes on the blockchain. And, and again, I guess it's, I guess the sort of the meta question here is why is it more effective and useful to do this on the blockchain than that, that than another way of doing it? And and what are you doing? What are you recording? How how is it helping? Uh, so. Unfortunately, we already have a, a multiple precedents in the, from the past of um, Russia committing uh, genocide uh, of Ukrainians specifically multiple times and then not being held accountable for it. So our hope this time is that, the, and the way they do it is um, by uh, destroying or concealing records of what's happened, uh, denying uh, what's happened and um, denying the fact of genocides to be precise and then you know pretending that they've changed into a more um, a friendly society that is not going to behave like this again and then it happens over and over again so uh, starting lab they work to record um, evidence of war crimes on blockchain and to kind of create a ledger that is going to be mutable um, and distributed across different networks. Um, our work with them that's most significant uh, consisted of uh, our team on the ground going um, to, t- to collect evidence uh, in Kharkiv, evidence of uh, Russia shelling a school, and uh, they do target educational and cultural sites um, specifically on purpose. That's also part of genocide. And then um, that cryptographically stored evidence was um, submitted to the International Criminal Court, and that was, um, as far as I, as far as I know, the first uh, kind of um, evidence like that submitted to uh, the court. And uh, yeah, we are now waiting, um, kind of how that is going to be implemented in, uh, you know, uh, in the consideration. But um, yeah, so that was. Um, that was part of our work with them. You've mentioned um, fighting disinformation. Would you go into some more detail? Um, what kind? I mean, I guess before that, something that's very interesting for people not from Ukraine, not in Ukraine, is what kind of disinformation you see and how you see you see it playing in the West and elsewhere. And then how we, how are you and and your um, your colleagues fighting it? So we have within Ukraine now. We've now moved uh, from fundraising. Our priorities have moved to. Um, fighting disinformation and propaganda and amplifying voices of Ukrainian people that have not been uh, listened to enough, they haven't been heard enough uh, over the last years. And that is part of... Oh, sorry, that's my glucose answer. Um, that's part of the problem and that's part of uh, why we ended up where we are. And I think the most damaging thing that we've seen is uh, mainstream media being infiltrated uh, by Russians and Russian narratives and Russian lies, essentially. Um, and uh, u- the use of even Kremlin-adopted prop- um, terminology, right? Uh, the use of the words 
that that are describing um, what's happening. Um, for example, the use of the word crisis instead of the war conflict, uh, proxy war even, uh, that's, um, it, it ends up being very dangerous because language creates kind of ma mental maps in our mind that we then use to kind of make sense of what's happening. And uh, if we use crisis instead of a war or invasion, uh, that creates the kind of picture in our mind where it's easy to assume that uh, there is both sides at fault, which is not the case here. Um, so we try to uh, promote media literacy and uh, critical thinking skills, and we engage a lot with community members online. Um, try to educate them um, on kind of, uh, sometimes on an individual level, but we also publish a lot of materials through our social media and blogs. Uh, and just kind of to engage and educate people about why, uh, you know, why coverage of Ukraine has to be Ukraine-centric. Just on that, what was it like? Um, you said you've, you've been back three times to Ukraine to visit your, your, your parents uh, and, and to see other places around, around the country. What was it like coming back to the UK? Did it feel ex extremely strange to come into, into a society where, although people are, are following the news, it's not necessarily the thing that's on the top of their mind? H how did you see that? How did you deal with that? First of all, it's very sad. <laughs> it's re it was really sad to leave Ukraine. And uh, people often assume that... Uh, like Ukrainians abroad, they are somehow disconnected from what's happening, and they are like uh, l less Ukrainian even. Uh, sometimes there is assumptions like that. Uh, it's very difficult, uh, very difficult to be away from there. Um, and so we try to kind of find other Ukrainians online and connect. And uh, um, it's it's a therapeutic thing to. Um, to be speaking about Ukraine uh, online. So thank you for having me here in the first place. Um, what's it like? It's hard. It looks like a parallel universe, to be honest. Um, it's difficult. That's pretty much all I can tell you. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. Um, so you've raised an awfully huge amount of money through your projects. Wh where do you see you going next? What's the next steps for Ukraine Dow? So at the moment we are working on a Christmas project that is going to uh, focus on um, this uh, Ukrainian-American carol that many people do not know actually that it's Ukrainian. Uh, it's called Carol of the Bells. Um, I'm pretty sure that uh, most of uh, people in the audience will recognize it. Um, I can put it up, pull it up um, and play in the background uh, to show you guys, but I'm pretty sure. You can look it up. Uh, and then we're also helping to launch Irandao at the moment. So that's our next big thing, uh, because obviously uh, the, the Iranian women that are showing right now incredible courage in uh, the face of adversity that is um, in a regime that is uh, also helping Russia um, kill Ukrainians, right? So Iran sells drones to um, Russia that then go and kill Ukrainian uh, people. Um, so kind of resisting that regime and hopefully it being overthrown, that would be very, very helpful for Ukraine. And that's uh, 
is part of why we are helping right now um, Iranian women. Um, so yeah, that's Iran, Iran Dao is our next big thing. May I ask, from your trips back to Ukraine, is there a particular scene or moment that really stands out for you that you'd want our listeners uh, to, to hear about and understand? Yeah, it was when we went for a walk with my friends um, who have a baby, um, baby Luke or Lukian. He was born a few days before uh, the full-scale invasion began. And then the siren goes off um, and we obviously have to go to a bomb shelter. And what we saw in the bomb shelter was um, really, it was really moving. Uh, and it was really sad in a way because... Um, it was like it was a music class, and the kids that they were singing it was a very beautiful um, uh, sound, but it was also kind of about them being super um, used to it right and uh, it was seeing how normal that be- became to them uh, being in a bomb shelter and carrying on with the bomb sh- with the <laughs> with the class um, in t- such conditions so that was I think one of the most profound moments and uh, definitely the most uh, like the most favorite footage uh, that I filmed in Ukraine. Elena, is there anything um, we haven't spoken about that you'd want to bring up um, that you think is important for our listeners to understand? I think what's um, something that Ukrainians are trying to communicate to people at the moment is that we are going through huge trauma and uh, people people are very often quick to kind of tone police us and to um, make sure that our reactions to what's happening are not too um, emotional, not too um, intense. And um, that's sometimes not helpful. So we try to... Uh, we try to explain and we try to communicate that um, it's normal to be <laughs> it's normal to be hateful uh, in uh, response to what's um, being uh, done to us. Um, we are going through genocide, and um, hate is normal. In re- it's a normal, healthy reaction um, in response to um, what we are going through. So, kind of. Normalizing that, um, what else? I guess um, I guess I would love to hear some questions that people have because um, I'm very curious what, what is it about Ukraine that interests people? Sure thing. So we've got one question from Nick who says, what do you feel about the state of Ukrainian journalism? Um, this is something we've, we've spoken about a little bit, I think, over the past, gosh, what is it now, 100 and, uh, 192, 193 podcasts. But I, I think Nick is interested in, in your take. What is the state of play for journalism in Ukraine at the moment? First of all, I think coverage of Ukraine is very... Um, it's very either Russia-centric or it's west like uh, West centric, right? And uh, sometimes Ukraine's agency is just overlooked, and uh, either um, Moscow narrative uh, is dominating the place, uh, or the space, sorry, or um, that of the West. And 
we feel like uh, Ukrainians think that uh, at the moment U- Ukrainian uh, voices should be prioritized and uh, um, amplified and there is not enough of that. So I think that's the biggest problem at the moment. I guess my uh, closing comment would be um, that uh, whenever there is a discussion that um, covering Ukraine, uh, it's super important to have a Ukrainian voice there. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.